Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Okay, welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. We'll do a little bit of a walk down um, memory lane. Talk about the history of cognitive biases a little bit and uh, how these things connect together. So bias was something that was kind of new to people uh, early on in the, in the research. And uh, Herb Simon, a computer uh, scientist and psychologist at Carnegie Mellon, was involved in uh, this process. He would call it bounded rationality, this idea that uh, we can't be fully rational thinkers at all times, uh, which has important implications for things like philosophy and economics, kind of theoretical disciplines. Uh, acknowledging that we are limited in the amount of information we can possibly take in and process at any given point. And so what that results in is some irregularities in our thinking where we'll take mental shortcuts or our best estimate of the situation will be um, too simplistic compared to reality. And so uh, that's where the whole field of cognitive bias gets started. From there, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky did some of the most influential studies uh, kind of bridging economic and psychological domains to look at how people make regular errors that occur uh, in their daily functioning, the anchoring bias being one of the uh, early uh, identified biases, along with things like availability. So particularly available information has an oversized impact on your, your thinking at any given point. And then over time, uh, there, there just were more and more of these biases coming up every year, especially during the 1980s and uh, into the 1990s. People would start to give uh, all sorts of little descriptions of these uh, often one-off sort of experiments where, you know, there's something like the hindsight bias where we uh, overestimate the probability of something after the fact that it's already happened uh, compared to what we would have initially. And uh, over time, these biases just proliferated to a point where if you go to Wikipedia, there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 130 to 150 biases at this point. Yeah, I was always impressed by the fact that they'd bleed into one another. And it was really difficult to discern, you know, how they were related. Uh, if, uh, you know, a lot of them I, I felt like were categorizations of really the same thing with just a different label. And the, where the rubber meets the road here is what you actually do about the biases. So one of the things that uh, I, I think it's, it's not so much news to people so much at this point that we have regular biases in our thinking. And these go across people. You know, a lot of the things we talk about, everyone is subject to these biases uh, just at some point. So knowing that they exist is not terribly useful. And uh, I think it can be a very daunting if you see this sort of giant laundry list of all the possible biases that you might face. Um, I can think of a, a nice book detailing biases was by Rolf Dobelli. It's called The Art of Thinking Clearly. And we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, what Rolf did was generate a nice explanation of about, nine, I think it was 99 biases that we face. And they all have different names. And he had a lot of real world examples of that. The challenge was uh, when I had read that book, 
I was struggling to make sense of how would one actually identify, you know, a specific bias in one's life? And then furthermore, what would you do about it? Yeah, I think the natural inclination is to identify it and then somehow compensate or adjust your numbers based off of the fact that you know that you have the bias. I think that's the implied uh, approach, but it's really just not that simple. No, and we can take advantage of um, cognition in the brain in order to try and address sets of these biases, since many of them probably arise from similar areas within our cognitive architecture or the way the brain processes information. Why not take a stab at trying to use one good practice that addresses maybe 10 different biases? And so that's one of the uh, projects that George and I have been working on in recent times is trying to grapple with how would one categorize a variety of different biases as they apply in our investing uh, specifically. And so we like a uh, division into, uh, first of all, attention biases. So our attention systems um, are really the gateway to all the information we're going to process. Some things are just more obvious to us or more salient to us than other things. Um, And so this right away leads into the salience bias, that kind of emotional you know, uh, dramatic sounding information just grabs our attention and we're biased toward that. And so when information is uh, sort of quantitative and more mundane sounding, uh, we tend not to notice it. This sounds very much like the framing effect, which is another episode we, we covered recently on this podcast, where uh, essentially the, uh, the way the information is presented, how um, evocative it is, uh, will bias our attention and thereby uh, cause us to be distorted in some way in our thinking. Yeah, I guess this is the uh, situation where these attention biases largely come out of things that are more reflexive, uh, that we have more things like, you know, the rustle in the bushes, you will. You make the assumption that it's a tiger, so you run away. Maybe that's not a logical uh, assessment of the probability of the tiger being in the bushes, but for the, you know, our ancestors that uh, made that assessment and they thought that they would have a reasonable, you know, I'd rather have a more reasonable assumption uh, just because I have this small bit of evidence. I'm not going to overreact to it. I'm going to uh, further investigate. Well, they may have gotten eaten, right? And so what's left over are those, you know, ancestors that heard the rustling in the bushes and ran away and survived. And therefore, that gene uh, where we tended to overreact to uh, some new bit of information, that continued to be perpetuated. We think very much on a a short-term timescale, just because we're sort of a a tribal species trying to survive. And so uh, that gears us toward a lot of very short-term thinking. We call it instinct-based biases when uh, they're incredibly fast, incredibly emotional, and uh, we're, we apply that, that sort of rule over uh, most people most of the time. We've also talked about how people are oriented toward a 24-hour clock, that we have some level of fatigue that we're going to just have set in that's just part of our day. And so loading up important uh, attention-consuming activities earlier in the day is a very good tip. Don't do your most important work when you're kind of mentally run down. And uh, so attention has uh, limits just throughout the day. 
So you can think about it on a very moment-by-moment basis where the salience of information can grab you or fail to do so. But we also have that sort of um, fatigue that can set in where you can just basically sort of mentally check out. And um, you know, that also has to be factored in. Our brains are not necessarily set up for monitoring things like investment positions over months or years. Yeah, it can definitely uh, be a bit of a tax. So one of the important ways to remedy attention biases uh, is, first of all, to know about them. Things like the salience bias, evocative information is uh, more easily noticed, the framing bias, that however information is presented in whatever context it is, that can lead us toward certain conclusions and even affect our risk-taking. So if we're trying to face down some potential losses and those losses are highlighted in the way uh, information is presented or how we're thinking about it, we'll tend to take bigger risks than if we're thinking about being conservative. Also, things like the optimism bias would fit under our attention systems. The optimism bias is simply that we're the hero of our own stories and we tend to think things will work out well for us. Maybe not for everyone else, but at least for us. So there's a very autobiographical component to that. And uh, that's a little bit more drawn out in time that our attention, we are very self-focused <laughs> just by nature. And so uh, we, we tend to think things will work out for us. Its counterpart is the ostrich effect. And that's a bias where um, just like the proverbial ostrich sticking its head in the sand to avoid confronting reality when bad news is proliferating news we're not interested in hearing, um, we will tend to systematically ignore it. So we sort of have that voluntary component to our attention as well. So George, what are some good practices that we can put in place to address not just one of these, but a whole set of these kinds of biases related to our attention? Well, a lot of times these tend to be uh, very, you know, responsive, very, you know, fast acting responses that we'll have for attention biases. So putting speed bumps into your decision making often helps. Part of that is, is, you know, perhaps before you act on a thought, maybe you should write down your plan of attack. Before you even get into the circumstance, when you have a particular position, you have a pre-mortem that's associated with it so that you try to anticipate problems that might come in the future and then write down how you may act once those uh, problems come to fruition, that's often an important element that you can add to the, uh, to the process. What's also nice about a premortem is you have a set of sort of guideposts that you can check on as information develops. You're, in a sense, highlighting your own likely narrative, and that lets you avoid things like that salience bias. So you're not going to be simply grabbed by whatever's in the news cycle. You have more of a uh, clear-cut answer you're looking for. And so you may become a more balanced or more, I guess, uh, calibrated consumer of the news because you're not simply taking this reactive stance of getting whatever information comes at you, but you've got kind of a plan in mind that you're uh, able to maybe highlight some of the uh, important information for you and keep things in balance. It's important to record your thesis uh, when you have a particular investment that you're making, and then to revisit that thesis 
as news develops. So if you see things change, ask yourself, was the investment thesis that I had, has that been affected by this and by how much? Yeah. And in relation to that ostrich effect, the, the systematic ignoring of bad news, uh, that actually can be a good practice in and of itself. So ignoring the news can be useful because news tends toward hyperbole and uh, maybe being more dramatic than uh, it needs to be, just because that's naturally what people are interested in. So you, you can limit your news consumption, or when bad news does come along, having written down your thoughts in advance lets you better uh, keep in mind how dire it really is. That's right. You just have to ask yourself, if I was looking at this investment with this news in mind, if this had been there, would I have continued to take the, cer- the same action at the current price? Right. And another category of our cognition is memory. So we've talked before about different memory systems. We have working memory, which is whatever information we happen to be thinking about right now. It's kind of like whatever's consciously on our mind. And we also have long-term memory, which is uh, kind of your larger database of information that you store throughout your life. Now, in memory research, there are some really clear-cut effects that will always show up in a memory experiment, one of which is the primacy effect. So the first things you learn are always very memorable to you, and there's a variety of reasons for this. One is that these are distinctive items or situations, and also they don't have as much interference from uh, later information as it comes in. So there's a primacy bias toward whatever information Uh, we hear about initially, will tend to overly color our future thoughts. And this has to do with our narrative construction as well. Those types of things serve as an anchor point to our, the story we're going to try to tell as we make sense of the world. Similarly, there's the recency effect, which drives recency bias or availability bias. Um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky called it the availability heuristic, which is a guideline where Whatever happened just recently is particularly potent and highly available in your memory. So it has an oversized influence. And then other aspects of um, cognition, such as whatever we own now is more valuable to us, the endowment effect. So things linked to our memory kind of hang together as another category of biases. Now, it's not to say they're 100% different than the attention biases. Attention feeds memory. But I think when you try to make sense of biases and, and identify them in your life. It's very helpful if you can identify uh, things related to our memories. So on that note, George, what are some tips for these memory biases to better process the information and avoid some of these errors? I think sometimes uh, employing a devil's advocate to talk to someone else as a different view is a uh, pretty good approach that you might take. You could get some alternative input uh, before you go and you make your decision. Another thing that is also helpful is, again, go back and review your initial thoughts when you had, you'd formed them. That helps you to, you know, reground yourself versus some information that you just recently have received uh, that may be unduly weighted. Uh, And then finally, I always think that it is helpful to avoid looking at 
preformed opinions when you start your research because you know you talked about that primacy bias the first thing you look at has a tendency to outweigh other bits of information that you acquire along the way so if for instance if you have cell side research that has a fully formed opinion about a position that you're looking at doing research on uh, maybe you would look at that at the very end of your research uh, after you've formed your own conclusions, looking at things like the company filings and the presentations provided by the company and talking to other people within the industry before you go and look at a sell-side view that is a fully formed investment view. Yet I would caution people to keep in mind all of our memories are fallible. So even people that say, well, I have a great memory, <laughs> you know, I, what I think is reality. Always beware if you hear that. Um, and even within ourselves, we have a lot of mental blind spots because we can't see our own biases and we can't see our own memory errors. I'm reminded of some research that was done kind of early on in cognitive psychology. People had this idea of flashbulb memories. And we've talked about this before, that the idea behind a flashbulb memory is if there's an emotionally salient event, um, it feels as if the memories are incredibly immune to failure and distortions. And uh, research more recently with uh, 9-11 situations, everyone remembers where they were on 9-11. The reality of those memories are that when they brought people back into memory labs uh, months to even years later, details were lost and erroneous details were added. So even in those uh, extremely evocative autobiographical memories, we're open to distortion. So that's an important lesson in and of itself. Uh, it's, it pays off to journal. You know, writing down your thoughts not only clarifies your thinking, but it serves as um, something you can look back at and kind of remind yourself where you were kind of in a different position as information maybe hadn't yet unfolded. And again, it's just a way of keeping yourself grounded so your narrative doesn't start migrating with uh, primacy effects and recency effects and all those other sorts of memory distortions that occur. Yeah, I, can, I couldn't agree more. Okay, and then one more category of biases that we like to talk about are knowledge-based biases. And these are uh, related to the other two. Uh, they may be very related to the memory biases, but a knowledge bias is often the case when we gain expertise, we take a lot of things for granted and make a lot of reflexive, rapid, intuitive kinds of conclusions just because we uh, have some whole set of information that we think we've seen before, uh, this is just like what happened in some other situation, and we start to draw a lot of rapid conclusions that are inappropriate based on almost having too much knowledge. Some of the, the knowledge biases that have been identified over uh, the years, one is the curse of knowledge, which describes the tendency that if, if I know something to be the case, uh, I assume everyone else also shares that information. If you've ever taught other individuals, this can be really tricky because getting into their mental space about you know, how they're going to perceive the information is really, really tough because you can't disentangle yourself from your, your own expertise. And so that curse of knowledge just is a way of biasing us uh, to not be able to really understand what someone else is going to be seeing in the information. Confirmation bias is another common tendency we have once we have some 
theory about the world and we think we know it to be true, we start to cherry pick information. In some ways, it becomes like an attention screener that filters out information that runs counter to our thinking and reinforces inappropriately what we're already thinking about. And then also things like the knowledge illusion, which we've talked about in this podcast before, this idea that underestimate our actual knowledge of things. We, we're overconfident in possessing details we don't necessarily have. So these knowledge biases can also be very tricky, and we can apply some common remedies to these as well. Yeah, there's a few things to think about here. First, you should question for the knowledge biases and the assumption that others know what you do. You need to think uh, about the premises that you have for various investment uh, ideas that you've put together and then question them to go back further and say, you know, what, what is the substantiation for those premises? And is it rational to, you know, think that I really truly know what it is that I am using as the basis to make my investment decision? The issues associated with confirmation bias, uh, it's good to have multiple scenarios that you consider so that you keep an open framework and you think in terms of probabilities for each of those scenarios and you try to substantiate each and every one of them. That may be difficult to do as an individual, so you can employ a devil's advocate where there is somebody who is charged with the antithesis of whatever your thesis is, where they're supposed to go out and try to find all the flaws associated with the investment idea. And of course, again, talking to other people helps in making that assessment. If you can go and talk to others that don't suffer with the baggage that you're bringing to the analysis, that have been thoughtful and have looked at the situation, often you can find uh, that type of input in other in investors, you know, you can look 13F at the holders of a particular position and see who is involved and perhaps you can reach out to them and maybe they'll actually talk to you about their thinking uh, with respect to the issue. Now, they may be like-minded, so, you know, you'd probably be better off talking to somebody that disagrees, uh, assuming that you would also want to go long that position. But if you're looking to short, then maybe you should talk to a long and see if that long can give you some insight into uh, why they hold the beliefs that they do. Yeah, talking to another person gives you extremely potent feedback that's very hard to ignore, um, especially when that person holds some counter viewpoint. You can always learn something from the way they're uh, describing the argument. I guess I'll bring up one more challenge, though, that when you do start to talk to others that are like-minded, you can introduce some of those groupthink biases where now you become overly confident because you have a second sort of corroborating opinion that seems to, to share your own ideas. And if you've spent too much time talking together, you can start to develop almost an um, immunity to uh, outside opinion. And so we've talked about this before in a previous episode, that groupthink biases, it's very helpful to kind of refresh a group by bringing in new members from time to time, or people that hold diverse viewpoints uh, where you can learn from those people. That'll help you break out of those knowledge biases. Remember, these are part of the cognitive architecture of our brains, and so we can't fully avoid biases. 
And uh, we can try to address them by thinking more analytically and putting um, basically speed bumps in our way to force us to check our assumptions. And so in this episode, we've talked about uh, attention, memory, and our knowledge systems and how those generate uh, whole categories of biases. So when you go uh, check out the Wikipedia page on biases, you can start to group them rather than uh, simply chase them down as independent types of biases. Another thing I wanted to bring up is emotion. So sometimes people will talk about emotion biases. I tend to think that emotion is present in almost every bias. Uh, Certainly, it cuts across a lot of the biases we've talked about today. Um, And our emotions are just linked into cognition. When you think of uh, Mr. Spock, the famous Vulcan alien from Star Trek, he was famously without emotion. He was a purely rational being. Um, The reality of it is emotion really helps our cognition a lot of the time, provides motivation, um, signals warnings, and helps us get along with other people. So uh, I would view emotion as being interlinked to all three of these sets of biases, rather than really driving a set of biases um, independently. Yeah, I think that's right. There's some things you can do to mitigate negative emotion that can push you into a, um, a decision that's less reasoned. Uh, if you're in the heat of the moment, one advice I tend to give is step away from the problem and breathe. Uh, you know, your levels of cortisol tend to be elevated in moments of stress. And sometimes that's not the best condition to be in to be making snap judgments. Yeah, and that's another important point we should make. A lot of times people have considered cognitive biases to come out of our intuitive, thoughtless selves where we're, we're under time pressure or duress, and so we make bad choices. That can certainly happen some of the time. That's snap judgments are where we express our biases. But I think there are other cases in which um, a lot of those knowledge biases, for example, almost come about from thinking about things too much. And going back to groupthink, when you've spent too much time pondering a narrative and someone else agrees with it, you've almost spent too much time in that situation where, you know, you've built up a set of biases just based on kind of hardened knowledge that's occurred. So there's no simple answer here. It's not, not just that you should slow down all the time. Um, there are many uh, kinds of angles t- that bias can hit us from. And so it's all about keeping good practices in mind, sticking to your, your goals and uh, looking for evidence wherever it is and being willing to acknowledge when it doesn't fit your pre-existing narrative. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's uh, important to be able to distinguish, and this is where a lot of art and nuance comes into the practice of investing, to distinguish those periods where your intuition is going to be important for you to rely on, and then those where you really need to avoid an intuitive you know, thought and be more deliberative. It's an ongoing process for all of us. No doubt. So we thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in these topics, be sure to visit the show notes at mentalmodelspodcast.com where you can find more links to the basic brain physiology as well as some of the topics we've talked about today. Uh, Just another reminder, uh, we have a forthcoming book entitled Understanding Behavioral Biases, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, which is all about some of these biases that can undermine your performance and the uh, basis for those within our brains and how it impacts our lives. Thanks. 
Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.